or difficult to specify how do we know it's ready to bottle. Um, tactile, tannin shape, fruit has changed. Uh, while the wine is in a barrel, it goes, it, it kind of sheds, I'm thinking about red wines here, red wines in barrel, they kind of shed this primary fruit thing. Um, often there's some CO2 trapped in there that breathes out through the barrel. Sometimes they'll be very like, uh, just like raspberry jam and that can slowly evolve into more plumish boysenberry. Uh, the way the wine feels changes with time too. That, that initial like first nine months can be huge. Um, and all wines, they don't necessarily, some change a lot, some change a little. Lighter bodied wines like Grenache, uh, I leave in barrel now, like maybe eight months. It's just fragile, it's lighter, it oxidizes easily. Uh, some other grapes, I've been holding stuff in barrel longer and longer, up to three years. And the, the, those 100 day barrels will probably be five year barrels. So you give away some things, you have other things happen. If, you, if you're making a stock, chicken stock, mm -hmm. and you chop up your vegetables really small, then throw in your aromatics, you can take it off the burner, strain it, and do a five minute stock that will be completely different than the five hour stock. Those molecules like break apart with the heat, different ones come together, you burn some things off, other things evolve. Wine is the same. So hard to uh, really explain like when something is ready to bottle. With white wines, sitting in tank, there's sort of this these two poles of freshness, brightness, and then roundness. Where do you want to be on that scale? There are certain um, we grow a grape called Negro, Negro Amaro, excuse me. Um, it has a very particular fig note to it, and I've been trying everything to capture that fig note, and I still haven't done it. So last year, wine never went into a barrel. It stayed in the tank the whole time. I didn't let it, every time I moved it, I CO2'd it, like I was doing everything to keep everything possible in that wine and it just it went away in the acidic solution it became something else uh, Zinfandel uh, can be very hazelnut flavored at about 9% alcohol it goes through the, there's just something about the way the compounds develop I can't capture it I've tried several times now with rosé can't do it um, and that's like bottling quicker and quicker trying to get it fresher and fresher so Somewhere you got to make your decision. I'm gonna bottle it. It's evolved enough or it's gonna be fresh and bright and you know Very, you know bright acidity kind of angular tannin. We'll take that for this wine But this one this Cabernet wants to be deep and dark and you know have a lot of complexity to it and layers so It's difficult uh, fortunately bottling lines are much better these days uh, a lot of small producers they have bottling lines in the back of semi-trucks. Semi you just back the trailer up, attach the hoses, and they can bottle thousands of cases a day. Bottling equipment is really, really expensive. We haven't used that yet, but I am so ready to, um, <laughs> once we hit the right scale and all of that, um, just bringing a bottling truck in sounds great. Every person who works in a winery will tell you bottling is the worst. Not only is it I used to not sleep very well the night before bottling. It's the last chance to really screw wine up. Mm -hmm. If you have a, you know, a, a 
a bad connection, you're letting oxygen in, or you know the line's not as clean as it should be, or maybe there's something microbial going on that you didn't know about. Um, I had a wine, a slightly sweet red, that was intentionally slightly sweet, re-fermented bottle. Had to pop 200 cases of corks and re-ferment it all dry, and just try to recover it. And that's all you can do. Um, then you have choices like, do you filter it? Red wines, they really clean themselves up. If you let it sit in barrel for a year, it's going to be pretty clear. If it's cloudy, there's something going on. But for the most part, I don't think I've filtered a red. At least six years. That's for 14 different wines. So it's not, as long as you're relatively cautious early on, you can bottle without filtering. That's okay. If you have sugar, you have to filter. Where are you on cork versus twist top? Um, <laughs> twist top is a really cool idea. There are big reds under twist top now. Uh, I believe New Zealand is 100% twist top. All their Pinot, all their Syrah, as well as Weiss. Um, twist tops are very technical. So not just from like the actual, like that's some serious machinery, getting those pressures and everything, and the different liners at the top. That's precision stuff, um, and, but the wine also needs to be like 99.9% .9 where it wants to be once it goes into twist top. Mm -hmm. With cork, you have, there's air that's contained in the cork. Um, I rely on that. There's, there's like a, f a fudging factor. There's a sort of a fuzzy, it's in the ballparkness when you use cork that you don't get with twist tops. You gotta have like your gases right, your dissolved oxygen, CO2, um, tannin isn't gonna develop that much. So generally lighter reds that don't have a whole lot of tannin work better. Um, but they're like uh, Bonnie Dune, if anybody's heard of Randall Graham before, he's sort of a maverick California winemaker, big Rhone advocate. He staged a mock funeral for the death of the cork many years ago <laughs> and been bottling everything all the reds as well under screw cap ever since for the last 12 years which includes some pretty big dark bold wines hmm. so they're they're extremists on both sides for small producers uh it's easier for us to get the wine like i think it's ready um i know that it'll need to sit in the bottle for about six months because it has a little more oxygen exposure, but I sort of build the wine to go under cork. What so, about natural versus synthetic cork? Well, that's where it gets interesting. There are actually now, I think Noma Cork has synthetic corks from sugarcane and corn products that are, have hit the market, and now they're dividing those into like one year, two year, three year with different oxygen rates. and So you can... There's this thing called, uh, I guess I didn't have it up here. Oh yeah, reduction versus oxidation. So this is, gets a little bit geeky, but it actually is important for the wine that you drink, especially if you're drinking old world wines from Europe. Um, so oxidation, I think we probably all have kind of an understanding of that. A little bit like nutty and tired, uh, bruised or browned apple is like the classic descriptor for oxidized wine. It can be some people use the word sherry, sherry-ish, even though that's sort of different, or matterized is cooked, but it's kind of a nutty, caramely thing. Um, reduction is the opposite of that. That's something that is oxygen-starved, and 
do a little chicken wire model of that, but I'm not sure it's helpful. So, but to, to make that make sense, when I bottle my wines, I want them to be more oxygen starved so that that air that they're exposed to while we're filling the bottle and then putting the cork in moves them to a balanced point. Now, I don't have a microscope, so I don't, <laughs> I don't have the science on exactly like what those nanoliters look like, but there's something to, with reds, and even this, this white, um, this was corked normally under cork, uh, hand bottled, um, but we used nitrogen and tried to keep as much oxygen out as possible. But even this went into the bottle somewhat oxygen starved and then kind of intentionally will align itself. Now I've screwed that up before. Um, I have bottled oxidized wine. There's also a point where some wines can become so reduced that they develop sulfur compounds that are stinky. Yeah, start going into that like, not necessarily rotten egg, but a little bit like musty, danky. And this is why it's important uh, for wines you might buy. Um, I've experienced a lot of French white burgundies that were very reduced, very mushroomy, like no aromatics. And then you give them air for 15 minutes and they restabilize themselves and come to life. Uh, warm climate grapes, sometimes hot climate grapes, like uh, some of the warmer climate Spanish things, um, they can be very like stinky and dank and a little bit unpleasant. 15 or 20 minutes worth of air and suddenly they're bright and fruity and round. Um, and it's hard to predict what can be reduced when you buy it and what, what isn't. Um, and then a further extension of that is like, I've got this 30-year-old Bordeaux. Do I want to give it air or not? <coughs> well, if it's fragile, then you probably don't want to give it air. But some wines, like 10-year-old Barolo, mm -hmm. um, that's a wine that can literally be more expressive the second day of being open. There's just something about the nature of the Nebbiolo grape grown in that area that can take a ton of air. Um, one of the wines that we make Southern Italian varietal is uh, every time I have a bottle, and I have more of these bottles in my cellar than anything else, and I'm fascinated with it. I should have called the cellar, it's a couple boxes in the closet. Um, but every time we open it, I just did this last week, at hour four, when the bottle is just finishing, it's suddenly opening up and becoming super expressive and beautiful and balanced. And it's just, it's so like tight and angry for the first two hours and steely. And then it just sort of absorbs oxygen and finds its balance. So, so we deal with that. We don't talk about it that much in the winery, but it's actually an important winemaking principle. But it has an effect on you as a consumer if you start buying more interesting particular bottles. Is the wine you just talked about, what variety? Uh, I guess I'm going to call it a grape called Ayamaka in the southern Italy. And that's one that's famous for going dead in the bottle for like five years. Just be like a locked box of nothingness. So it goes through two dips after you bottle it. Hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know why. We should probably have a chance to now. Uh, you'll be tasting one of them, yes. Yeah. Yep. So. You mentioned the term round. I guess oh. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. Uh, 
around. This this is one of the. I've done a fair amount of wine retail, so I'm much more. Uh, round is one of the most common terms people come in and say, "I want something round," or "I want round, dry, and sometimes spicy." Or like the three things. It's like, okay, let's start as square one. Mm -hmm. um, round, I would usually equate with soft and full, to make it more. Uh, less specific. <laughs> uh, softer tannin, less acid, structurally. Something that's maybe heavier, more soothing and palate coating, um, as opposed to like Pinot Noir, which is more lean and spicy. A lot of the Cabernet, like I want a big, people want big bold Cabernet, and the confusing thing is that Cabernet can be very round and full and soft, but if you get hillside Cabernet, it can be like tannic and just very burly and kind of rough in a really appealing way. It's one of those grapes that you can do a lot with and there's a lot of places you can take it. It can also be very, very fruity. I mean, I don't, I grudgingly accept that Cabernet is probably the most important grape. Like I fight a tooth and nail and it's something just, there's so many other great grapes out there with untapped potential and things that I personally like even more, but I cannot deny that Cabernet Sauvignon has like the complexity divided by the climate times the presentations plus the aging minus the, like just the equation for Cabernet probably makes it the most diverse chameleon out there. And then Chardonnay would be second. Is a shark here, but we'll get to these in just a second. So, so we deal with that in the winery, but also for you as a drinking tip, sometimes, and this is usually more expensive bottles. When you buy cheap bottles, they're made to be pop them and pop them and drink them. Rarely will you find something under fifteen dollars that isn't ready to drink at that point. And in fact, mostly most of the time, you should drink quickly. Just knock it. Occasionally you'll find like some weird Portuguese thing or something like that in your wine shop that's a closeout for 15, 20 bucks that, you know, can, can be on a totally different plane than, than the bigger stuff. So and that happens a lot these days. There's a lot of uh, consolidation distributors drop a brand. When I was working wine retail, we would get $40 stuff that suddenly was $12 a bottle. They changed distributors. They wanted all the vintage gone. So if you have a good wine shop that kind of has... The larger corporate stores are not going to do this this much. Um, like uh, Total Wine and BevMo out here. They're much more like a couple big distributors. You're not going to get the weird little bits of imported randomness that you can get in like a local wine shop that's actually, you know, tries to have some diversity. So I'm, I'm all for supporting small local wine shops. Mm -hmm. um, it's amazing to me that they're like, if you go to Sonoma County, I think there are only two. Oh, there's three. There are three. But it's like, yeah, they're harder to find than you might think. So if you have a, if you have a good one, definitely support them. Um, but I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your nose. So people say the smell is 90% of the experience. I think that's really overstating it a little bit, but it's definitely a huge factor in wine appreciation. Um, one thing to keep in mind about your nose, though, is that 
it exhausts itself quickly, which is good because we don't think about in our daily life walking down the street. Well, no, you'll smell like freshly baked bread here and then asphalt here and somebody's tarring their roof here. And we smell those things. But fortunately, our, our hardware adapts really quickly because we live in a world of constant smells. Our houses smell. I mean, if you ever left your house and then came back a day later, like, I live in this? <laughs> I'll never forget when I was living in Portland, I took a little trip out, and the second we came down out of the mountain range into the general flatlands, it smelled like a wet sponge. Mm-hmm. It was just like so much moisture, and it was the middle of winter, just like, ah, I hate this. Being in California, it was a little bit much. Um, but that's a good thing, because we'd be pulling our hair out if we were smelling everything we're smelling all the time. They're good smells, and they're bad smells. And there's a lot of static in between those two things. Plants, flowers blooming, soil, rocks, smell, everything smells. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're tasting wine, your nose can exhaust itself. It takes about, probably varies by person, but between 60 to 90 seconds for your nose to sort of reset. So I don't know if you've ever picked up a wine, it was sort of mute, you swirled it, you smelled it, and you're like, ah, there's not much here. And then you did it again, five seconds later, and then you did it again five seconds later, and you might sort of notice diminishing returns, like the more deeply you try to really smell it. It pays to take a little break. Step outside is a good one. Like if you're doing a pretty deep tasting at, at a bar, at a, in a, a tasting room, and you're feeling a little bit of fatigue, step outside for a minute, kind of clear your eyes, get some fresh pine air in your nose, come back, and you'll notice it makes a huge, huge difference. So nose is delicate. Uh, when I taste, for me, it works to think of it as a circle where there's sort of a first impression, which is often seems to be the most accurate in the end. And then I'll sort of give things a second, think about what did I smell, and then I'll taste. And the, the different wine tasters have different methods, but you'll see or hear a lot of people sort of slurping the wine or bubbling it. Uh, it's not required that you do this, but it sort of volatilizes a lot of the aroma compounds, and then they go up the back of your nose. And this is why when you're eating, or you know, if you have a cold, if your nose is completely stuffed up, you eat food, you really, you're not, it's just all sensation. You're not getting anything out of it. And that's that retronasal pathway. Very important. Um, so when the wine is on your palate, it sort of like vaporizes up the back of your nose. And then you start getting a more full picture of what's going on. And then you have that, that moment where it's the, the palate sensation, the tactile stuff, the body, those questions like roundness, leanness, fullness, um, the aroma stuff. And then you, you know, bitter, acid, sweet, all of those things start coming together. And that's what we think about when we think about tasting wine. It's like that sort of that moment of, of complete uh, completeness. Um, other people have different methods. Some people don't like to sniff it at all first and will just go straight into sipping it. And they feel like they get a more honest, holistic picture of it. You know, just practice, do, do build what works for you. I just happened to slurp wine the way the first guy I ever tasted with did it. So I got into the habit of just sort of rolling some oxygen over the top. Um, it's okay if you don't do it, but it's worth practicing. 
And then you sort of work on the whole memory thing. Does this taste like, smell like something I've had before? Do I know if it's Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc? If so, what's the difference? Um, oh, this is very apple-y, but not very tropical, or vice versa. Oh, if it's very tropical, maybe it's a Rhone White. You know, you start, you can go as far into the software as you want with that one. Um, but just like red wines, white wines can change a lot over time too. They can be very, some of the Sauvignon Blancs can be very like guava tropical thing. And by the end, they're much more green and herbal, which I'm always fascinated by those transitions. Is it the wine? Is it my nose? Is something exhausted up here and I'm picking up on something else? These are good questions. Uh, and the subject of spitting, it's a weird thing to do in public. Uh, took me a couple of years to get comfortable with it and going to lots of big professional tastings where just everybody is spitting. And if you don't, then you're one of those people. <laughs> so uh, that said, there's a, there's a certain level of, um, maybe it's more of a guy thing, but the precision and speed of spitting is a little bit of a badge of honor. Uh, it does evolve that way as a group activity. So some people are very good at it. Uh, one of the best master sommeliers I know, she is a horrible spitter. So, uh, so if if you want to try the the medium way to take it is to use the little paper cup that's on the table. Um, that way you're not spitting into a spittoon publicly. Everything is visible. I encourage you if you want to do it because that way you can taste a lot more wines just practice in your own home uh, lip shape and tension has a lot to do with how well it works uh, and force the trajectory of the evacuation so it is kind of complicated um, you can you, you can even like use the cup you just kind of like block every, that's what she does she you know, she's world famous, author, flies everywhere. Somehow <coughs> she, she just never developed the, the thing. And to her credit, she's like, I don't care. I'm not going to do it. So it's good for her. But if you're going to taste 100 wines, you're going to need to spit. It's how it works. Um, it doesn't mean that you can power through them all 30 seconds apart. So there's definitely a, a diminishing and and take a break, get some air, eat something, come back, and you're ready for the second round. Mm -hmm. But it takes a while. You do absorb some alcohol sublingually. So I'm pretty alcohol sensitive, and like at about 30, I start, you know, start feeling it a little bit. Take a break. Um, it's not really processing in the same way as, as sublingually, so actually it can go away with a little break <clears throat> quickly. Uh, coffee can be difficult though, lots of bitter stuff in coffee. Be careful what you eat. Uh, if you're drinking reds, proteins, meat, cheese, do a good job of cleaning all those tannins off the palate. Water isn't necessarily the antidote when you're tasting also. Um, I find also lots of people like to rinse their glasses out with water in between wines. That residual water in the glass, for me, I believe it spikes the alcohol level because they sort of absorb and volatilize each other more. So I'm actually opposed to opposed to rinsing. As a, just as a point. And if I'm walking into a tasting, the first couple of things I want to taste are like the most boring, neutral, uninteresting things on the list. So 
just like something to set the palate. You got to, you know, talking about like pH three, three point five instead of seven or slightly acidic like it normally is. It takes a couple of minutes to get into the zone. You know, you're shocking your palate something. So just take it. You know, try something that you're not quite so interested in. Uh, the other recommendation: I've waited too long to taste the trophy things, and then they're either out or your palate shot. So like if if like you're going to hit the expensive burgundy table, like, do that a few tastes in when you feel calibrated and really present and ready to go. Don't, uh, don't necessarily wait too long. Um, there's a lot to discuss with, with the nose, for sure. Uh, looking at the color, though, color is cool. It's a, it's a really interesting part of wine. It can definitely give you information as to whether or not there's a problem, but different grapes have different hues, different colors. Sometimes there are little clues to what's what. Uh, there, there are a couple of grapes that get very orange at the rim, and they're kind of lighter reds that are more pink hued in the middle. Other ones, uh, Malbec. So Malbec can be a very dark, dense grape. You see a lot of it from Argentina. Uh, there's this theory that Malbec, it's very thin skin that has a lot of color in those skins. That because it's thin skin, it's very lightly colored at the rim, almost translucent very odd phenomenon, but it seems to be true. Uh, Pinot Gris, uh, if you've ever had that, Pinot Gris grapes are quite dark, or Pinot Grigio is the same family of grapes. Uh, they're, they're dark gray, they almost look like red grapes. If you look, but they're pressed quickly so they don't get a whole lot of color. Um, but if you look at the rim in a glass, you can actually see some of the grayness. Instead of being like yellow, although they call it the meniscus, um, that saved me on a blind tasting exam once. But I wasn't sure. I'm like, oh, I think it's a little gray around the edges. <laughs> Got lucky on that one. Um, not all wines will be heavy. I mean, Pinot and uh, Gamay, there are lots of thin-skinned, lighter red grapes, lots of heavy-skinned, darker red grapes, and everything in between. And they all have different aging sort of hues and the way they change. Um, don't just think darker is better. Let's throw that out there. And conversely, lighter can be fun, but doesn't necessarily mean better either. So when it's a little brown, though, you know, it's kind of... I think brown is a warning sign. Yeah, um, but, you know, if it's a 30-year-old Bordeaux, it's going to be a little brown around the edges, but can still be amazing. It's sort of about that. With the older wines, the question is, does it still have enough fruit to balance the smell and the way it feels on the palate? And you'll kind of, we, we have these talks, like somebody's always bringing in a 40-year-old bottle and stand around and it's like, over the hill? And we're, we all should know, we're wine professionals. And it's like, there's a little, there's a little bit of fruit in there. This you try is to make ten it years not over the dead. hill. If you paid a lot for it, it's been sitting around. Yeah, say, exactly. Really okay. There's an attachment it's to it. If I drink it all now, it's okay. Plus, it's a rarity to drink really old wines. I, I don't get the opportunity to taste them that, that often. And I'll always remember a, an aged Chablis tasting. I did a bunch of Chablis from the early 90s. So, cool climate Chardonnay from northern France. They were all like... They just, it was like nothing but white mushroom and straw, 
I hate it. I love, like, why are you pouring this? But the sommeliers were falling over themselves for how I, they, they were speaking a completely different language than I, as like a California food drinker, was prepared to understand. But even then, there was the discussion, are these dead or not? So, but there was a lot of acidity in there. They use the same terms that you just used. Did they use mushroomy and straw to describe it, or did they avoid mushroomy? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I think mushroom, the very, well, then you get into like chanderelle. Or, right. yeah. 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 That's my point. I mean, is mushroomy a good thing? O- older wines like, generally are going to move into leather, <laughs> mushroom, wet soil. Like those damp leaves. Well, barnyard is barnyard is a that's a tough one because that could be Britannomyces, which is a spoilage yeast. Barnyard sausage wet horse are the Britannomyces things. Uh, but pinotage can taste like sausage, and there are there are some meaty grapes out there. Morved has quite a almost like a searing steak component to it when it's grown in some areas. So it's just, you know, these are lots of molecular compounds. You know, when, when you smell strawberries in a wine, there are molecules that it's sharing with actual strawberries that happen to occur that we pick up in that way. Um, yeah, I've, I feel like I've been with a lot of groups that thought a, thought a wine was good that actually I would disagree with. So there's a little bit of a fetishization of like older... 59 Bordeaux kind of thing. They're like, ah, this is just so tired. On, on the last slide, there was one category, the sediment, and you say not oh, necessarily sediment. a bad thing. Yeah. Can you explain um, that? S- filtering um, but some grapes are just by their nature prone to a lot of sediment. I've seen this a lot with Spanish wines. It seems like warmer climate wines get destabilized a little bit. I always have sediment problems with our Barbera. It's a high acid red. I think being having all those red grape things in an unusually high acid package just makes a lot of those molecules unstable. So I don't like the tartrate crunchies when you have the little crystals at the bottom of the bottle and you feel like that's very, that bugs me. But a little bit of fine grain sediment in older bottles is pretty normal. Um, when I pour a bottle though, I just always assume that the, I don't pour the last half ounce. Just, I, unless it's something, you know, just made fresh from the store. But if you're working in a restaurant or something, you sort of just don't pour the very last bit. If it's, if it's something with some age or something you suspect might have sediment. Pinot doesn't seem to throw that much sediment. Uh, Cabernet depends on where it's grown and how it's made. Um, winemaking practices. But as far as knowing what that <coughs> equation is, I don't think anybody totally knows. So it happens, but it's not a horrible thing, though. Just, yeah, just be cautious. You can always sort of hold the last half ounce up to the light. Um, it's always kind of interesting to me, though, that eventually the wines will migrate to the same place. If you've ever had, uh, like, a 20- or 30-year tawny port, that was a red wine that now looks like this. 
all of those all of those color things they eventually are going to come out in solution and they're going to go somewhere so they just happen to be taken off of the, all that sediment so i wouldn't worry too much about it um but generally and this is something that barbera does as well you can either get some of those finer grain pigment compounds or you can actually get little chunks of uh of acid basically that fell out of solution some grapes do this some don't i don't know why there's lots of lab testing for this when you're making white wine because if, if it happens in red wine like it's okay it's not ideal but it's okay but if white wines are full of distracting chunks uh, that's kind of problematic so we try to avoid that um, there are a couple different stabilizing methods one thing that we do with white wines basically uh, it's a cold temperature stabilization so you just open the door on the winery, and up here, you know, it's about 30 degrees a lot of the winter. And the wines will stabilize to that temperature point themselves. So uh, if they live in a winery their whole life, it's always 60 degrees. It's called cold stabilization. Then you have to chill down the tank to 32 degrees for a couple of weeks or add some new product to it to make sure that that doesn't happen. So. Another trick with it is that if you do a little bit of skin contact with the white wines, you get a tiny bit of tannin, and that kind of can help it settle as well. There, there are little things you can do. If it's more natural, you might just have to live with it. Smaller producer, we don't have all the fancy toys to fix all that kind of stuff in quite the same way. Yeah, so. more of our samples here had stuff floating in it, didn't it? Yeah. We're going to get to these in just a second. Um, so just wrapping up with smell, it's that, that olfactory bulb next to the limbic area where things get kind of weird and emotional like <laughs> when you smell cookies from your childhood and, you know, sea air or something like that that starts triggering emotional memories. The sense of smell is really unique in some ways, uh, very, very primal, so that's what makes it so interesting. Um, the retronasal route is where you're using that slurping <coughs> to kind of aerate the wine and get more up your nose. Uh, with that, let's take a sniff of the first wine on the far left. Yeah. We'll do it just <laughs> left. Yes, just like reading, we'll start. We'll start with the left and move to the right. And all three of these are the same one. Oh, Pretty lazy, though. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's good, that's okay. Well, it's more education. Do you think that sounds great? No. Or same bottle? They're same, same. Uh, so, any thoughts on the first wine? Or do you, anything jump out, of, out at the glass? Do you? <laughs> Definitely <coughs> like the color. I start automatically associating with more yellowish tinted fruits. That, that stone fruit, maybe like yellow, you know, golden apples. Pear, I think it would definitely be. Yeah. That apple, pear, maybe like young apricot, maybe a touch of peach kind of, kind of category. So any thoughts on what it might be just based on that? Or any thoughts on what it might not be based on that? 
I would say it's not grassy or tropical in the way that a Sauvignon Blanc would be, so I don't think it would be that. Yeah. Yeah, there's that. Yeah, I almost think there's like a little bit of lime zest in there. I like a tiny bit of white pepperiness, too. <laughs> See, that, yeah, I know. Once somebody starts... Yeah, once somebody says something, then it all... I know. And I think I'm immune to it, and I know yeah, I'm not. I think that's how you learn, you know? I think I'm kind of like, okay, yes, I smell that. Yeah. It's important, but sometimes you have to, like, push against it. Say, no, I don't smell peach. Um... Okay, yeah, this is not as tropical as I would expect one of the white Rhone varietals to be, like Viognier or Roussan. Uh, those are both things that Lake County does very well with as well. You'll probably get to try some of those at some point. Um, what else? Definitely not Riesling. Riesling is it's either more floral or more like wet rocky or more kerosene than this. Yeah, Riesling can have that sort of almost diesel oiliness to it, depending on where it's grown. Yeah, Riesling is a, like a, a world unto itself of diversity also. Um, okay, let's taste. I would say a little bit of acidity, but not too screaming high. little bit of stoniness. Not super heavy, though. Like, not waxy or oily or fat. Don't think I'm getting any oak from it. Okay. So this is Chardonnay. But it's Chardonnay that's never been in a barrel. Oh, no Chardonnay, yeah. And Lake County, so good amount of sunlight. Well, sh yeah, Chardonnay is a chameleon. Chardonnay is the yeah, hardest yeah. thing to tell. Because I, I would have almost said that something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, compared to buttery, spicy, barrel-aged Chardonnay, it's, it's much lighter than that. But not super racy, high acid like some other things could be. It's kind of a middle-of-the-road middle thing. So, glass number two. Should smell similar, but it's gonna smell a tiny bit different. Ooh, I overdid that one. Okay. Go ahead and taste. <laughs> so this is the same wine, but with more of the tartaric acid. Tartaric acid is the main acid that grapes naturally have. It's pretty unique to grapes, actually. There are lots of acids out there, and there are a whole list of them, but tartaric acid is like 85% of what makes wine wine. And there's a little bit of malic and lactic also. Yeah, it actually changes the way stuff volatilizes. Yeah. So that gets a little bit into the winemaking thing. Like at different acidities, things can smell different, or different things come forward, uh -huh. yeah. I should say. Yeah, yeah. And then on the palate, they'll disassociate in different places. Yeah. But the important thing to me is, yeah, 
picking up on the sourness and then how it feels like salivary glands kind of thing more side of the tongue and foremouth one of the things that took me a while to get in learning about wine was the difference between acid and tannin because sometimes they come together and then you're like I can't even tell like which is which so let's try grape or uh, glass number three I should be worried that there's stuff moving in. Uh, actually. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll explain this later. You can drink. You can drink. Yeah, mine's doing it a little bit too. So when you taste this one, I'm getting chalkiness sort of on the middle of my tongue. Sort of a fine grain. So this has tannin added to it. Same wine as the first one, but with some tannin additive. Yeah, and this starts moving to that descriptor. This is, I should have mentioned dry is the other one that's super confusing. People come into the wine shop, I want a dry wine. They all are sugar-free. Like, are you looking for a lot of tannin or a lot of acid? Because they both feel, they both have drying sensations. I immediately think about pairing this with what kind of food. Because See, I think this would be really good with a certain kind of food, but I'm not yeah. sure what. And cheese, maybe cheese? Cheese is, uh, if a certain cheese? anytime you're challenged, go to cheese. Like, uh, if you can't figure out what yes, will Wisconsin work. Thanks, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what we say. So I've, I've got some great aged Gouda from Wisconsin on our cheese plate right now. I, I don't think I could just drink this by itself, no. but I think it would be good. Yeah. And tannin works really magically with food. They, they sort of freshen each other up, and that's why some wines are called food wines, usually because they're big and they have, like, high tannin chalkiness to them. And tannin, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but when we say tannin, like, it could be dry here, it could be dry here, it could parch your gums, you could feel it on the back of your throat. Tannin is a huge catch-all for at least, like, a hundred different palate shapes I can think of. The second taste is better I think with tannic wines, there is that sensation. Like, you got to adjust to it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's definitely, and that gets into we adapt. I mean, the sensation of adapting to the aroma, adapting to the, the how it feels. It, it does something important. Um, as to the floaties, uh, when you add tannin, attracts uh, itself to protein. Um, so it, what it's doing is actually pulling out little tiny bits of protein that were in suspension in the first wine and making them globule up. So it's just something that, it, that happens naturally. And they make tannin additives for white wines to help clarify them early on. Just protein. Yeah. It's protein. It's like bugs. It's good for you. And going back to your earlier question, I do think we're relatively equal with senses of smell. They change when we age, but we can adapt. We can get smarter. I, I'm, 
I'm, I'm getting older myself. I'm working on getting smarter rather than faster. Those days are behind. And this is just a little diagram really showing that it really does go up the back of your palate <coughs> and back to that bulb. It's a pretty amazing phenomenon. Like, that, that that's, you know, I, I guess other animals that make weird noises with their nose can do it. But, um, so I would call this like medium intensity. It's in that Chardonnay, like middle of the road category for me. Uh, if this was oaky, it would probably move into heavy. Oak has a lot of effect, especially on white wines. Sometimes people will talk about the difference between <clears throat> primary and secondary. That's getting into that leather, mushroom, or bottle bouquet is another term. So like an aging or tertiary. Uh, older wines get stuff like that. Oh, truffle is a good one. Um, that can be good. But too much can be too much. So um, they develop with time, and you may not sense them the same way that your neighbor does. And there can be a funkiness, and that really just gets into that needing, needing oxygen. With that, should we take a short break? And we'll, we'll hit the hit the final stretch.